my mother learned that there was a plan to transfer me to Russia, because in Russia there was a school for uh, talented children. And my mother was in panic, because after all we went through, she certainly didn't want to lose me. So she decided to escape. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 10, Aftermath. Samuel, his mother, and a friend's daughter boarded a train that was filled with Jews attempting to get to displaced persons camps in Germany. They were traveling with fake documents provided by a Jewish aid organization. By the time the train reached the German border, the organization's clandestine efforts had been discovered, and the train was stopped by Soviet guards. There were trucks standing and giving light with their uh, strong lights to the um, police, or there were Russians there, because it was on the border of the Russian zone of Germany. And they were shouting, everybody out, everybody out, everybody out. So she took me with this girl, with our little suitcase, and went out on the other side of the train, which was complete darkness. And she started to walk with us towards the um, head of the train. And when she arrived to the head of the train, there was one of the Poles, the drivers of the train, he said, what are you doing here? You should be there with all the other passengers for the control. She took off her watch and she gave it to him and she said, you must bring me and these two children to Berlin. He told us, come in here when we went into the second wagon of, um, of the train. Now, that particular wagon was serving a particular purpose for the Russian army. It was actually a wagon in which there were women giving services to the soldiers. And on every station, soldiers were waiting there. They were going up, they were coming down. And some were even continuing the trip. Now there, my mother was trying very much to hide from me and from that girl what was going on at a distance of about uh, an arm length uh, from where we were standing. But since I've already seen facts of life and so on, we succeeded to, to, to hide in a corner. Now, my mother's concern was mainly for that little girl also somehow for her, because every woman that was in that wagon was there for a very given purpose. But uh, I don't know, all this was in the dark. 
I must say that uh, when I think of what my mother went through, she was a real hero. Abram Zheleznikov suffered a head injury during the final battle for Vilna. He was unconscious for several weeks. When he finally got out of the hospital, he went back to the place where he had been working, the Soviet unit for counter-espionage. They said to me, okay, you, would you like to go for a holiday to Crimea and then to a school? said, school, all right, then 20 years. I lost so many years in the ghetto schooling to go to a school. I was, okay, gave me some papers to, to sign, all right. I come out and I saw there was a captain in this group, but I saw him, I didn't know him. He called me on the side and said to me, you are a Jew? Yes. You know what you signed? I said, yes, I know, I'm going to a school to Moscow. You know what kind of a school it is? I said, no. So he said, look, you can do whatever you want. Now you must swear everything what is holy for you, that you wouldn't talk to anybody what we are talking here. He was a Hasidic, a Lubavitcher man. When he told me, you know, this is a school for spies. If you will go in this school, you will never come back. You will always have to work for them. If you want to go out of it, I'll give you an address. There is a medical, you'll have to go to a medical check. There is such and such a doctor. Go over and tell him that I send you. So we arrived to Berlin, and from there we arrived to a big meeting point of refugees, where there was an American uh, army rabbi who was trying to question the people, to see who is a Jew and who is a pretending Jew, because there were many refugees who pretended to be Jews, because they knew that there are certain American organizations that help the Jews and it was a privilege now to be a Jew. So we had to queue up. And the tension was growing. Because many people came out shattered from there. They were insulted by this man. He was asking them, now tell me this prayer, or tell me this, uh, this broche, and so on. And uh, he was insulting them if they did not know it. When we came in, he said to my mother, well, I understand that you pretend that you are Jewish. So she told him, look at this boy. How do you dare? How do you dare to be in this position? I don't think I've ever heard my mother yell and scream at somebody. This man who was sitting there behind the desk, my God. He did not know where to hit himself, where to hide himself. He asked for forgiveness. He apologized. Well, I think he, she gave him quite a lesson. So I decided I'm going to this doctor. 
kam to this doctor, this doctor was a Jew from Kono. I came over, I had a look at my papers, had a look at Sheleznikov. He said, any relation to Yanko Sheleznikov for the Bundist in Vilna? I said, yes, that's my father. He said, you know, what are you doing here? Only for, because, you know, in the, in the Soviet things, you had to all, at least once a week, to write your curriculum vita. And I wrote in my curriculum vita that my parents have been killed by the, killed by the Nazis. Only for this you can get five years, if not more, because you told a lie to the organs of the Soviet Union. You hide that your father is arrested by the Soviets. This is a crime. I said, all right, I'll give you a paper that you are, could have loss of memory. Well, give me a medical certificate. I come back to this um, colonel. He had a look at this. Get out from here. He didn't talk with me anything. Get out from here. And don't tell anybody where you have been working. Give me some money, give me some food, give me a pipe at the time, taken off of this. Okay. We were sent to one German town, to another German town, to a fourth German town, and we ended up in a DP camp called Landsberg. And in Landsberg, I have spent about two years, I think, waiting for papers to go to Palestine. And we got the papers, and we started our move towards south of France to go on a boat. And we left, actually, before the declaration of the state. And we arrived in Israel when the war with the Arabs started, broke out, and was in, in, in its full. There was a law that if you can prove that your parents have been Polish citizens and that they are under 20 years, you can be adopted by somebody who goes to Poland. So it was everything, everything legal and the 1st of May 1945 was still the war I come to Lodz. Abram stayed in Lodz for several years. In keeping with his family tradition, he joined a socialist party. When the Soviet-backed regime cracked down on political activity, Abram escaped to Prague and eventually settled in Australia. What got me to Australia was the furthest point in the world. I want to go away from everything and everybody. In Melbourne, Abram and his wife, Masha, opened a cafe called Scheherazade, which became a gathering place for Holocaust survivors. After the war, Mira Verben participated in an attempt to poison German soldiers. Then she left Europe and moved to Israel. <laughs> Getting used to being in Israel was difficult. It was very hard, not knowing the language, 
knowing that no one is waiting for you at the port when you arrive. You stand on the refugee boat and you start crying for all those years you went through, for all the years you haven't cried. A new place. No one knows you, not being used to the heat. When there's a break, there's nowhere to go. But we no longer feared for our lives. I moved to a kibbutz where I met my husband. We got our room the same night of the declaration of the Jewish state. Three days later, my husband was drafted for the war. William Begel was a teenager and alone when Vilna was liberated. Uh, then I went to my old apartment, and I had a, a large apartment for myself for about two days because uh, the apartment was listed as a place where Germans lived during German occupation. Before you know it, the KGB took it over, and they gave me the maid's room that I could stay and within three days they threw me out. But I got a job uh, uh, in a factory uh, that was supposedly doing aviation equipment, but nobody did anything. And I stayed doing nothing till March of 1945, when as a Polish citizen, I was able to leave Vilna for Poland. I was in Lodge, and uh, I made a living by uh, playing the piano in a restaurant. In September, I went to Prague. That's 45. The war is over. From Prague, you could get easily into the American zone of Germany. The uh, Brichard found a way of uh, transporting Jews from Prague to, to Munich. And that's where I finished high school, in Munich. And I found my uncle in New York and came to America. Penny Dermashkin Gurko and her sister were in a DP camp in Landsberg after the war. Henny sang with an orchestra there and her sister was a pianist. They stayed until 1950, when they moved to the United States. I was about to go to Israel, and it was my dream. I speak Hebrew fluently. I was a Zionist, and I couldn't wait for Israel to be there. And here, all of a sudden, I'm coming to this country. So, but it happened because of my sister. She got involved with one of the uh, violinists in the orchestra, and he got papers to come to America. And they got married, like very fast, like married so she could come on his papers to this country. And she was begging me to come here. And she said, you'll come, and if you won't like it, you'll go to Israel. But come with me, I can't leave you, I can't leave you. So that's what happened. And I came here, I right away had the children. I have two daughters, Vivian, Rita, and my son, Abe. 
When the Vilna ghetto was liquidated, Sheila's Vani survived by hiding in the sewers. She hid there for 10 months. In 1944, in July, we were liberated. Until 1946, we left Vilna. And we were the last of the Jewish people leaving because mostly the partisans, everybody already left because it was not for to stay there with the memories, with everything. So we went to to Poland. From Poland, there were already the Jewish organizations that took us, you know, farther to Germany, to the, the pill camps. I got married in 1947 in the PKM in Germany. He is from Vilna, and his whole family got killed also. Mostly we were in Badzal Schlieff. Then we went to Lechfeld. They sent from one camp to another. I think from Lechfeld I came to America. They didn't let me out because I was pregnant and I was not well too. So they didn't want to let me out. My brother and my mother and my sister-in-law with a baby, they left to America and me they didn't let go out. Till I had a baby there. I had a baby there, also they didn't let me go out. The baby was sick there and took five months till I couldn't take out because he got infections in the ears and I had to leave him in the hospital and we had to stay in the camps. We went through so much even already after the liberation. Then when we got here, I left my mother with my baby and I went to work in a factory to sew sleeves. And my husband worked nights in a factory too, in New Jersey. After the war, most of Vilna's Jews who had survived tried to get out of Europe. Chaim Basok stayed. He joined a covert Jewish organization that was smuggling young Jewish refugees to Palestine. After two years, he narrowly avoided arrest in Poland and decided it was time for him to leave too. While he was still in Vilna, Chaim visited Ponar, the mass murder site outside the city. He had filled an envelope with sand and human ashes. He took the envelope with him when he left Europe. He I arrived to the land of Israel on a ship that left Marseille. We arrived in Haifa just before dark. The British wouldn't let us off for security reasons. I took out the ashes from my pocket and held them up toward the lights on Mount Carmel. I told them, we have arrived. In the morning, when I got off the ship, I laid down on the ground and said, Later, when I was in the kibbutz, in the Haganah, when I was an explosives engineer, when I was an officer in the army, the envelope always came along with me. I thought that 
If I would be killed in combat, they would bury me with the sands of Ponar. Then, when I became a career officer in the army, I didn't carry the envelope with me anymore. I moved it to a locked drawer at home. No one in the family knew what it was, and the drawer had a special lock. My children would ask, but I would not answer. That's how it was for many years. Then the Association of Jews from Vilna decided to build a memorial in Kiryat Shaul. I gave them the envelope and the sand, and it is now in Kiryat Shaul. One day my children found that the drawer was unlocked. Only then did I tell them the secret of the closed drawer. When they ask me how I survived all this, I don't know the answer. I did not have a will to live. Sometimes people think those who survived must have had a stronger will to live. But I had no will to live. I made no special effort. My efforts were for my sister to live. I brought her food. I collected penny by penny to buy her winter boots. But for myself, I was indifferent. I had a relationship with God that I developed since I was 10 years old, maybe two years before the war. And I spoke to God daily before it became uh, apparent that we are slated for destruction. And uh, I uh, believe that there was not a single day of my life during, uh, from the beginning of the war until now that I haven't spoken to, to God. I uh, asked God to give me uh, strength and opportunity to survive. One very important thing, what I think, what helped to, to save me. I ha didn't have the feeling of fear. I met danger openly. It was my be my savior. Because if I would fear, I wouldn't be able to go out to things like this, like going with a carriage in 41, before the ghetto, when, when thousands of Jews have been taken to Panay, I didn't understand it, I didn't know. I didn't have the feeling of the danger. It wasn't in my conscious. And I, I think that this saved me. The war started in 39, I was six years old. And um, by the time the war finished in 45. I was 12. So very often when I think about myself, it's like thinking the number of a lottery that turns in a big kettle and just falls out. It doesn't know why. 
just uh, a number of miracles, strange circumstances, and you are there, while all the others are gone. After the war was over, I somehow realized that my mother and I, who were the survivors, the only survivors of that family, uh, we belonged to a club of people that had a need to talk one to the another, belonging to the club of the survivors, and they wouldn't talk to people who were outside of the club, because the things that were to be uh, said were of such a un precedented nature, that there were no words. It was also unpleasant to think that people who did not go through that would never believe. So I remember that when I was 13, when I was 14, we spent many, many evenings just listening to people telling their stories. And it was somehow in a very close circuit, because I know that many years later, people had a great difficulty to speak of those things, to relate to, even to their own children. My children knew everything what they went through. Some people, they wanted to hide. Like I have friends, they said, oh, can hide them, they, want, they don't have to know. I said, no, I want, they should know. Because, you know, when I'm gone gone, this generation is already, a lot died. And the time is very short, so I say, I want, they should know what was and what was going on. Sometimes I shake, sometimes I dream. The whole thing's what I, you know, went through. Sometimes I cry, but you can't forget these things. My wife met me in 45, June 45. That means about uh, a year after the mine events. Then I was full of hated, full of anger. Everything what I was talking, what I remember, was full of pain. And after the years, I start understanding things differently. And getting older, building her up a family, having children, feeling the responsibility uh, for your children, having sickness of your children, having a tragedy in the family when my younger daughter was killed in a car accident when she was only 17, changed me. It's not that I remember the things differently. I feel them differently. אני נשארתי היחידה מכל המשפחה, מכל המשפחה, אין לאף אחד. I am the only one left from our family. My sister and I were very close, and I miss her to this day. Losing her as I did was very hard. It was a matter of hours that my sister might have been able to stay alive. Not days. Hours. 
It is very difficult. We are a generation that has it very hard, and they don't always understand us. I have a lot of nights without sleeping, still today. If someone says that time heals the wounds, it's not true. Every year, it's more difficult. The missing becomes physical. I get panicked, and the snowball begins to roll. That's it. We have to live with it. I've lived with it for such a long time, and I've had such feelings of guilt that I was not able to take either my mother or my grandmother to escape with me. I uh, sound very unemotional about it, but it's part of my history. And uh, it's, it's even difficult for me to cry today. Within my family, there were 14 to 15 people having breakfast, dinner, and supper every, every day, and I'm the only survivor. chapter of Remembering Vilna, you heard from Samuel Bach, Abram Zheleznikov, Mira Verben, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Rachel Bachan, William Bagel, Henny dermashkin Gurko, Sheila Zvani, and Chaim Basak, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Claiborne Elder. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Leo Vizherbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. Hebrew to English translation was provided by Sarit Lisigorsky, Nahani Raus, and Ned Lazarus. Thank you to Christoph Diekman and Sam Kassow for historical oversight. Additional thanks to Sam Kassow, who prepared notes that provide historical context and accompany each episode. Notes and archival photographs can be found on the podcast's website, at thosewhowerethere.org. Thanks also to photo editor Michael Green and genealogists Michael Leclerc and Adam Gelman, as well as social media producers Nick Porter and Christiana Pena. Thank you to David Corral, Inga Dataya, Rennie McDougall, Christy Bailey Tomachek, Daniel Block, and Daniela Ozaki Stern for their assistance. To McDowell, to CDM Sound Studios, and to the Kennedy Center for providing space to work with our composer. A special thank you to Kata Bitoft 
audio engineer at the National Library of Lithuania. We're grateful to our colleagues at YIVO, including Jonathan Brent, Eddie Portnoy, Alex Weiser, Stephanie Halpern, Vital Zaika, and Julia Rothkoff. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. Bankschaft Ach, wie oft es ruft dein Namen von mein Es bängt sich noch die Zeiten von Amor. Es neuet. Es bängt sich noch die Zeiten von Amor.